This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Frontline's MTB Book Club. Need a new read and want to support the podcast at the same time? Visit frontlinesmtb.com slash book dash club. Then follow the links to purchase one of the recommendations on Amazon. And part of your purchase will go to support the podcast as part of the Amazon affiliate program. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for details on the latest recommendation. Don't need a book? That's okay. Go to Amazon by using the links at frontlinesmtb.com slash shop, and a portion of anything you purchase on Amazon will go to support the podcast. Do your shopping and help keep this show going. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the summer. There's been a lot going on behind the scenes of the podcast, and I'm excited to be back. I'll save the details until the end of this episode, but would like to say that the initial plan is to do a run of six episodes this fall that will take us into the winter break. As for this episode, I have two guests covering two different topics. The first related to some breaking news at the end of August about e-bikes and federal land. We'll clear up what that means as the greater mountain bike media was a little vague in some of their headlines, and perhaps many didn't actually read the entirety of various articles. And my second guest is here to tell us about an advocacy event happening the first week of October. So let's dive right back into things. As always, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 67 of Frontlines. My first guest, I'm joined by Morgan Lomely. She's the director of state and local policy with People for Bikes. Hi, Morgan. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks. So on August 29th, the Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt, signed an order allowing e-bikes on any federal trails where non-motorized bicycles can ride. Now, there's there's some limits to this, including that it is federal trails, but also this this doesn't include U.S. Forest Service land. What type of land managers does, does this apply to? Great question. So Forest Service, as you said, is under the Department of Agriculture. It's a completely separate department. So this applies to four of the many departments under the Department of Interior. So that would be the Bureau of Land Management, the National Park Service, the Bureau of Reclamation, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And there are a few other agencies under Interior, but those four are really the the four that manage public lands for recreation. Um, you know, in national parks, there aren't a lot of mountain biking opportunities, but there are a lot of uh, road riding and kind of bike path uh, riding opportunities. Your land management obviously has thousands and thousands of miles of really top-notch mountain bike experiences. Fish and Wildlife Service, they have the National Refuge System, and I know that there are a lot of great biking opportunities there. And the Bureau of Reclamation, we don't talk about a lot, but if you think about a lot of the reservoirs in the West, they have a lot of great riding around the rim of the reservoir and mountain bike advocates have taken advantage of those relationships to assist in building mountain bike opportunities on those public lands that are generally managed for irrigation or water supply, but where there are great trails. So those four agencies. Mm, Okay. 
the big one is is BLM. That is a, a lot of mountain bike trails that are located on on BLM land. So that's huge. How did all of this uh, come about? I mean, it was it kind of seemed uh, like it came out of nowhere. And I know that's not that's definitely not the case. There's a lot of work to kind of get these uh, these changes in place. So what was the the background to making this all happen? The agencies have definitely been keeping their eye on e-bikes for the last five years, at least, I would say. And for the last five years, e-bike sales have grown year over year, and more people have been wanting to use them on our federal public lands. And so People for Bikes in in has been at the table with the Park Service and, and the Forest Service and a lot of other agencies just providing technical information. And at those meetings, the International Mountain Bicycling Association is there, Adventure Cycling Association, the National Park Conservation Association. So they had been just asking informally for information about e-bikes and where all these groups stand for a couple years now. And our capacity has been to advise on, um, not even advise, but just kind of share information on what the different classes are, what states have passed e-bike laws that define the three classes. And that's very different from public lands policies, but they're keeping their eyes out for developments at the state level. You know, uh, they've been asking about, you know, what different states have passed or have now allowed class one, two, or three e-bikes on public lands. For example, Colorado Parks and Wildlife has class one and two where e-bikes are allowed, you know, Idaho, Wyoming, Texas, uh, a couple different other states have updated their e-bike laws. And so, Federal agencies look to state and local agencies for guidance and vice versa. So People for Bikes, because we have been monitoring and kind of advancing e-bike legislation, the national federal public lands agencies have been looking to us for some technical assistance as well. So in a very kind of public capacity, we've been advising. And then, you know, these things happen internally at the agency. I, I think that the Department of Interior powers that be decided that e-bikes really shouldn't be in this category of motorized vehicles. That is generally how we define a combustion engine motorcycle or ATV or UTV. E-bikes are certainly not traditional bikes, but they're certainly not combustion engine vehicles, and they deserve to be allowed in certain places where bicycles are allowed with that local control. So, you know, in my opinion, because of that distinction, they decided to direct those four agencies to update their e-bike policies per this new three-class definition and per the federal definition of what a low-speed electric bike is. Gotcha. Is it a case that that um, it's kind of a, just a shifting of, of, of the time? Like as more and more land managers start to kind of engage and learn about this and adopt this, that we're, that we're going to see more of, of these uh, land managers kind of t- make this shift and, and, you know, whether it's, it's big federal levels or, or we're kind of going down to, to more of the small local levels, or is it a case of, of needing to change the attitudes? Cause I definitely see within, within the mountain bike culture, there's a slow kind of shift and and there's a lot of angry mountain bikers out there that are adamant against e-bikes and i i always get a good chuckle out of it because i think it it uh it perhaps just harms our our fragile uh uh, identities more than anything else than physically harms us or anything like that but is it a case of just like this is these these land managers are are just looking at the facts they're looking at what e-bikes are and, and making conscious decisions, or do we need to kind of change their hearts? Is that is that something that, that we're seeing? Land managers are incredibly smart. They 
they have gone to, to college and received advanced degrees in recreation management and recreation science. And any, I, I would say the biggest risk to e-bike access is the infighting amongst people who ride two-wheeled vehicles, whether it's a, a motorcycle or a e-bike or bike, but really between people who want to ride an e-bike and people who want to ride a traditional bike. And I hear a lot that allowing e-bike access is a slippery slope to allowing motorcycle access. And zero land managers who I've ever spoken with have ever reflected that. That's just, I would say, um, a little bit of fear-mongering from the mountain bike community. Mm. And I've worked in mountain bike advocacy for a long time locally and, and with Emba, and I feel like I can say that. I, I The land managers out there understand the difference between a bicycle, an electric bicycle, and a motorcycle, and everything beyond. So I think it's a little bit both in response to your question. It's the more time we spend on changing hearts and minds is the less time we spend on actual sustainable recreation policy. And the, these land managers do look at data. They look at facts. They look at science. And when they ride a, a class one electric mountain bike, by and large, their response is this thing is a lot more like a bicycle than it's like a, a motorcycle, especially a class one e-bike where you have to be pedaling to engage the motor the motor will shut off at 20 miles an hour and you know you're you're really also limited by the technical trail technical trail or technical trail features or anything else that makes mountain biking hard that motor doesn't solve all the challenges related to mountain biking where a motorcycle it's still a sport it's still an endurance activity but it's it's much different of a sport than mountain biking or electric mountain biking so i've been looking at this from a couple perspectives. One is what do land managers need in order to make decisions? They need to ride one and look at what other agencies are doing for peer examples. And a lot of them just need to experiment with very short-term pilot projects to understand what actually happens to that specific trail system and what are the consequences to that specific user group when we allow class one electric mountain bikes. Another perspective is just looking at the forums online as as we all kind of subject ourselves to, I'd say that the the tone has really shifted over the past couple of years from e-bikes need to rot in hell by and large to, you know, I don't want to ride one, but they're fine. You know, I have buddies who ride one or I, I've been passed by one or I've passed one um, and it's not that big of a deal. So I really think that the defining factor in what someone's opinion is, is whether they've ridden one or not. And if they've ridden a low speed electric mountain bike, they realize that it's much more like a bicycle than a, a motorcycle and land managers understand that too. So what, what people for bikes supports is really these data-driven science-based decisions on where they should be allowed and not having it be really governed by people's opinions that aren't rooted in fact or ever having ridden one. So it's, that's kind of what breaks my heart is that we're having this conversation well, oftentimes with folks who've never ridden one hmm. And what I say is go ride one, then we'll talk. And yeah. um, land managers understand that distinction and the Department of Interior understands that distinction. And they saw that it was time to update our federal land management policies to reflect that. Yeah, that's well said. So how does this uh, look on the ground? You know, are there are there steps that that each agency needs to, to take locally or, or is it just a case of like now you can go ride an e-bike on any trails that allow mountain bike trail? Let's, you know, for example, on, on BLM land 
Or is there another step that needs to be done at the local level in all of these places? Are there exceptions? Um, can certain trails be excluded from this? Um, what's, what's the kind of real local level going to look like next? Great question, because when this came out two and a half weeks ago, the media headlines were e-bikes are now allowed everywhere in national parks and everywhere in the <laughs> yeah. land management. And that is not true. Hard stop. So the secretarial order, which came from the Department of Interior, kind of the D.C. headquarters, was e-bikes are not motorized vehicles. If they fall within one of the classes, then they're, uh, they can be allowed where bicycles are allowed. And overnight, it did not allow e-bikes everywhere bicycles are allowed. So the National Park Service, well, let me back up. So the Department of Interior told those four agencies, you need to come up with a new e-bike policy for your agency. And so by September 12th, each agency, each of those four agencies needed to start that process of developing a new rule subject to public notice and comments. So subject to that public involvement that's so core to how we make new public lands decisions. And by September 28th, each of those agencies needed to report back to Department of Interior Secretary Bernhardt with respect to any policies that had changed or kind of any laws or regulations that limit that agency's ability to make policy changes and a timeline for the public involvement that they're going to do. So in other words, the secretarial order said, basically, e-bikes are bikes, and your agency needs to come up with a new policy that allows them where bikes are allowed unless you deem you know, certain facilities or certain trails unfit. So you asked about whether e-bikes would be allowed everywhere. They won't be allowed everywhere. They will be allowed in more places where bikes are allowed, but it's up to the local national park. It's up to the local BLM unit, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Refuge or that, you know, Bureau of Reclamation Recreation Area to decide where e-bikes are allowed. But the overarching principle is that they shouldn't be restricted to just motorized areas. They should be allowed in some non-motorized areas based on public input and based on local conditions. And one more thing is the National Park Service was the first agency on August 29th, so the same time that the secretarial order came out, on August 29th, the National Park Service came out with their interim e-bike policy, which essentially stated that e-bikes are now allowed where bikes are allowed, but the superintendents still need to come out with their own plan. Now, how can people kind of just stay up to date on on any of the the latest news without necessarily getting the sensational headlines? What's the best way to kind of see the updates in in this process? Well, I give a shout out to Outside Magazine. There, the article they published last Friday, so that would have been the thirteenth, was in my opinion one of the best summaries of how um, this affects where they ride their bike. People for Bikes has a number of. We have an FAQ also that lays this out like with the deadlines as well. So that's kind of the over and that's at peopleforbikes.org slash ebikes. You know, those are the pieces of information that kind of explain what this all does. But what I'd advise people to do is if they ride their bike at a national park, and you know, there are a handful like around the country or uh, on BLM property or fish and wildlife or reclamation, contact those agencies at the local level. So if you ride at, you know, Phil's World in Cortez, Colorado, that's governed by the BLM, contact them and figure out what their exact process is for determining where e-bikes should be allowed on those non-motorized trails. So there's kind of the larger level of what does the secretarial order do? What does the National Park Service interim policy do? But if you're worried about either advancing e-bikes where you like to ride traditional bikes or restricting e-bikes or just having a, a voice in the in the process at the local level, 
do your homework to figure out if you ride in areas that are managed by those four agencies and contact them directly. I will say that it's been hard for even, I mean, I monitor this every day, just trying to stay up to date and answer these questions that I get. And it's been challenging for me to figure out on a park by park level and, you know, unit by unit level, what the changes are being made. I think a lot of the conversations are happening internally right now, and then they'll roll out their proposed policy for public involvement. But unfortunately, it's it's so widespread that there's not one cohesive kind of clearinghouse for all these policy updates. And it's up to riders and advocates and anyone interested to contact their local public lands agencies and make sure that they're involved at the local level if they're interested in being involved. Oh, awesome. Well, fantastic. I'll, I'll definitely include uh, those links in the show notes. And, and Morgan, I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to uh, to chat with us, to kind of clear up some of this and and uh, and just kind of get us through the the um, the the mess that sometimes these uh, these announcements create. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Before we hear from our next guest, I'd like to make a call out to anyone working with these changes at a local level. Send me an email and we can chat. And even if you want to, you can uh, join the show and share some of your experiences. Now, my next guest is Martin Littlejohn, Executive Director of the Western Canada Mountain Bike Tourism Association and host of the Mountain Bike Tourism Symposium, which is taking place in Whistler, BC from October 2nd to the 4th. Hi, Martin. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Brent. So let's start with a, a little bit of history of the, the Western Canada Mountain Bike Tourism Association. What is the MBTA? What do they do? How long have they been around for? Well, the MBTA has been around since 2005. Basically, it was a, a group that formed after a few people, a few of us that were sort of the original founders uh, were involved with the North Shore World Mountain Bike Conference, which probably a few people will remember that. Uh, the first one was held in 2004, and there was one in 05, and also one in 06, which was the, uh, I think, the original IMBA Summit uh, that, that started that trend. But anyway, there was a group of us there. Uh, we invited, and uh, it was actually uh, well, all over BC, but there were people from North America as well, uh, elsewhere in North America, as well as Europe and and even Israel, I think, were there. It was quite uh, quite an event, and it was that at that time that we realized, uh, in talking with uh, many of these stakeholders that uh, that uh, came to that event, that uh, BC needed to get organized. You know, we had this huge reputation for for mountain biking that sort of came out of the free ride era. Uh, you know, Whistler had, was like one of the first, well, the first bike park to open. You know, so we had all of these really significant. Uh, things that BC was doing and getting recognition for, yet there was really nothing that was supporting those people that wanted to come here and experience it for themselves. So uh, so that's why the MBTA was created, called the Mountain Bike Tourism Association. And uh, so we had five original founders uh, and registered the society. Uh, at that time, we were working mainly with the bike parks because that was really the only uh, sort of legitimate product that we had to offer. So we, we started Bike Parks BC. And at the same time, we also did the economic impact study for the Sea to Sky Corridor, which uh, sort of was to, an attempt to measure 
what uh, visitor expenditures were in the in the quarter. In other words, people that were actually attracted to BC to that region uh, because of the mountain biking so that we could determine what the value of those trails meant to those communities. Yeah, and that economic impact study. So there's there's been two that have been done. So you've you you did one, I believe this was uh, a number of years ago, but then a couple years back you had just completed another one, and so you were able to to compare those two numbers. What were some of the big uh, kind of shifts that you saw? Well, the first one, as I said, was in '06, and then uh, the follow up one was done in 2016. So it was uh, sort of a 10 year uh, sort of a comparison, I guess, to see how much had changed over that decade. And it was quite substantial. I mean, we basically saw a tripling in terms of the economic benefits to to that region. And uh, a lot of the um, outcomes, I suppose, from the original study uh, supported uh, a lot of the uh, trail development that was going on uh, in that region because they actually had some you know, some some uh, some real numbers to sort of work with and to sort of present to use when they were uh, for uh, applying for grants and getting approvals and, and so on from uh, the various land managers and so on. So people started to recognize that mountain biking was was a very positive force in terms of its uh, ability to uh, generate additional economic activity for the region. So going forward right now, we've got, uh, we're coming up very close to the, the mountain bike tourism symposium. Um, they happen every other year. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the, the fourth in- installment of the tourism symposium. It's actually the fifth. Yeah. Ah, the fifth installment. I've always found that, you know, this will be the, the third one that I, that I've gone to. And, and I've always found that there's, there's always a, a an advocacy discussion happening and it, it might just be the people that I'm eating lunch with kind of getting on that topic. I generally try to find those, those advocacy focused folks in, in the room, but over the, the, the last two events, that's really become a front and center topic. And, and in Revelstoke two years ago, it was very apparent that everybody there that were thinking about advocacy and the trail associations and, and how do we support them, which is a, a real showing of even the folks that aren't necessarily involved with their local trail association or aren't, on the the board of their local trail association they they get that that is the most integral part to mountain biking is that these trails are are continuing to be maintained and so it's really great to kind of see that and it's great to kind of see this year's symposium having that focus being put on it uh, once again yeah we're we're always kind of you know and when i say we am I'm, I'm i'm kind of a a um you know, just on my, you know, sort of operating the, the Mountain Bike Tourism Association, sort of a cast of one, but I, I do have a very large board, you know, that represents uh, interests from around the province uh, related to mountain biking and all different facets uh, of that. So, you know, the, the, the key thing is that we don't want to put the, the, the cart too far ahead of the horse here. So, you know, we're always very conscious of that. And certainly in you know, in the most of the work that I do in terms of working with uh, the communities, and a lot of them are the destination marketing organizations in those communities, trying to sort of, uh, you know, get the get that that that, that across to them that that sense of uh, how you know we can't push this too hard before you know without sort of understanding the capacity 
of the local trail associations to sort of be able to manage and maintain the trails properly. So that's that that has become a real important kind of uh, uh, approach to being able to do this in a way that is more sustainable. So the symposium itself is it runs over three days. It's a it's a Wednesday, a Thursday, and a, a Friday. What uh, what format uh, is over those three days? Well, we've we've kind of used a similar format for the last uh, few symposiums. So usually that that first day is a chance just to uh, greet and welcome everyone. We have like a an afternoon sort of group ride, and then in the, in the evening there's a welcome reception, and then we have two full days of, of sessions. So where uh, you know we have we try to give as many people in the mountain biking community. Uh, the opportunity to uh, speak about the things that are really important to them, stuff that that they've either, you know, invested uh, a lot of time and energy into, or it's an issue that they feel really uh, that's really important to them. So we try to give that opportunity for as many voices as possible to be heard. But uh, this, you know, I think we have. 45 speakers lined up for uh, for those two days. <laughs> and uh, some of that, of course, is a number of uh, panel discussions where we bring a, a number of people to share their 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 perspective on a certain issue. But uh, just the same, it's it's a lot of content. Uh, some of it is concurrent sessions. So, you know, you have to kind of pick and choose which topics are, are most interesting to you and, and, uh, and sit in on those sessions. Uh, or if you come with a few friends, you can divide it up and decide who goes to which one sort of thing. So you're at least trying to cover all as much of it as possible. But uh, that's the format. I'd love, we could probably turn it into a four or five day event, but uh, I don't think anybody really has that much time to devote to it. uh, So we try to keep it contained. And uh, I assume there's still some space uh, to get in. Where can folks get more information? You can find uh, more details on uh, the website, which is mtbtourism.com. Uh, symposium.ca. There's information there on how to register. Uh, yeah, there's still some space. We are a little bit limited in space uh, this year in Whistler uh, based on the venue, but uh, we can probably squeeze in up to about 250 to 300, and we're around the 200 mark right now. So not a lot of space left, and uh, but uh, certainly love to see more people and, and fill that space up as, as much as we can. So uh, well, Martin, thanks so much for for taking the time to to join me today. I really appreciate it, and uh, and hopefully we can have you you back on the show as well because I think there's a there's a wealth of knowledge there about uh, about tourism and and promotion of of uh, of areas that uh, that we can all learn from. Oh yeah, BC has a lot to offer, and certainly we like to say it's the most diverse uh, mountain biking destination in the world. So uh, hope uh, everybody gets out there and explores it and and see how great it is. Thanks, Martin. Thank you. Big thanks to both of my guests, Morgan Lomely and Martin Littlejohn. For more information about the Mountain Biking Tourism Symposium, take a look at the links in the show notes. And in the show notes, you'll find a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club. Quote, how did Fidel Castro fool the CIA for a generation? Why did Neville Chamberlain think he could trust Adolf Hitler? Why are campus sexual assaults on the rise? Do television sitcoms teach us something about the way we relate to each other that isn't true? Unquote. The latest recommendation to the Frontline's MTB Book Club is Malcolm Gladwell's latest, Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. 
Now, I'm just about to start reading this one, but I'm confident I'll enjoy it and that you will too. Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors, and his podcast, Revisionist History, is always at the top of my list. I've just finished listening to season three, and it did not disappoint. So support the show by visiting frontlinesmtb.com slash book dash club, then follow the links to purchase any recommendations on Amazon, and part of your purchase will go to the podcast as part of Amazon's affiliate program. As for what I've been up to over the summer, while the podcast is back and I plan to keep it going for as long as possible, part of ensuring its longevity is to stick to a regular schedule of two runs per year, a fall run of episodes and a spring run of episodes. I'll continue to take a break over the summer, but also take a break during the winter too. As for my professional life, something did need to be reeled back and I made the tough decision to resign from my position as community manager at Trail Forks. That exit was a little bit clunkier and I'm not sure if Pinkbike was happy about it, but it was something that I needed to do. I now have more time to focus on my work as an outdoor educator, and I'd like to put more time and energy into this podcast. Up until now, this project has broken even, which I'm really happy about, but I would like to see it profitable so that I can commit more time to it. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring an episode, then please reach out. Now, as part of the Mountain Bike Radio family of shows, there's also an opportunity to sponsor more than just Frontline's MTB. As for me personally, my family and I have just purchased our first condo in the heart of Lower Lonsdale in North Vancouver, BC. Housing security has been a major challenge for us, and we're very happy to finally feel confident to be able to say that this city will be our permanent home. Now, as my good friend Mark and former colleague at Trail Forks put it very well, just 300 easy monthly payments. I'd like to thank everyone's support over the summer for your kind messages and words of encouragement. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. You can send me an email or audio file to info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Thank you to Ernest and Ule for their continued monthly donations. Those go a long way to cover some of the recurring costs of this podcast. And also thank you to Laura and Ernie for making donations over the summer. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Walnack and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. Now, I thought we'd end this episode with a different song, so I'd like to thank Gael Benjamin for his cover of Drive. But before that, as always, this is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails. Who's gonna tell you when it's too late? Who's gonna tell you things? so great You can't go on thinking nothing's wrong Who's gonna drive you home tonight
Who's gonna pick you up when you Drive you home tonight. <laughs>